Before we begin with this week's episode, we would just like to thank our new patrons. Sam, Brooke Aloha, Karen Griffin, Christina Cleland, and Christian Dees. And I do apologize if I have mispronounced any of your names, but a massive thank you for your support. It's much appreciated. If you too are interested in becoming a patron of Nordic True Crime and would like access to previously uploaded episodes, as well as one extra episode every month, then find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime or click on the link in the show notes. On the 12th of June, 2017, an elderly couple is found dead at their farmhouse in Mantorp, Sweden. Their hands, body and mouths have been taped, they have been beaten and their throats have been cut. Initially, The police are dumbfounded, they have no leads, and the killer manages to stay hidden for months, leading his normal, everyday family life as if nothing had ever happened. This is Nordic True Crime. Toad was a 70-year-old man who, according to his daughter, was a very calm person who enjoyed both fixing things around the house and making things with his hands. He was married to 62-year-old Anne-Christine, who really enjoyed baking, cooking, and loved spending time with her family, above all, her grandkids. On Monday the 12th of June, Thor and Ann-Kristins daughter, Carolina, is trying to get in contact with her mother. She had already phoned her several times, as well as having sent some text messages, receiving no reply at all. She decides to try her father, but once again, she gets no answer. This 
is highly unusual behavior for her parents, and Carolina, understandably, becomes anxious, getting that dreaded feeling that something must have happened. She decides to drive over to her parents' remote house in the countryside, continually phoning them as she drives, trying all their numbers in a desperate attempt to get some sort of reply. Then, she suddenly remembers that she had a missed call on her phone earlier that day, and she immediately returns the call. It goes to Ann-Kristin's boss, who had been calling Carolina to see if she knew where her mother was as she had failed to show up for work that morning. Carolina says that she's on her way out to her mother's house now and she promises to get back to him as soon as she knows what has happened. As she hangs up the phone, a horrible feeling comes over her. She just knows, deep down, that something has happened. Her sister, Johanna, phoned their brother and asked him to also drive by their parents' house on his way back from work. Johanna then proceeds to check all the hospitals, but can't quite remember her father's last digits of his personal number. A personal number in Sweden is the equivalent of a social security number, but it's also a national ID number which everyone receives when they are born. And since she can't remember the number, probably due to stress, the hospital can't release any information, so she calls Carolina. By now, Carolina is almost at their parents' house, so Johanna stays on the line until she gets there. The first thing that strikes her is how her parents' car is parked. It just doesn't look quite right. She walks up to the front door. It's closed, but unlocked. From the inside the house, she can hear the kitchen tap running in full flow. She shouts aloud, hello, but nobody responds. When she turns to the kitchen, she makes a horrible discovery. Both her parents are lying on the floor. They have duct tape wrapped around them and they are both lying in a pool of blood. She can tell that they are dead, but due to the shock, she doesn't quite register what has happened. Carolina screams and Johanna tells her to go outside and wait for help. She does what she is told and collapses outside on the patio, screaming. 
A short while later, Johanna's boyfriend shows up and he phones the police. The police ask if he's able to go inside just to see if there's any possibility that they may still be alive. He agrees to go into the house. He checks both Thor and Ann-Kristin, but both of them are dead. When the ambulance arrives, the paramedics quickly determine that there is nothing they can do to help the elderly couple. So they focus on taking care of Carolina and her sister's boyfriend until the police arrive. When the police get there, they search the building to see if anyone is still on the property. They even bring in the K-9 unit to search the surrounding areas, but are out of luck. So the investigation into the double murder of Thor and Ann-Kristin begins. The pathologist is called out to the scene where he examines the bodies as much as he possibly can, which was a difficult procedure in itself considering the circumstances of the crime scene. He wanted to touch as little as possible in order to try and preserve every bit of evidence. His findings show that the duct tape had been wrapped tightly around both of their heads, covering their eyes, nose and mouth. Anne-Christine had her throat cut and she would probably have died within 30 seconds of this happening. Thor had similar injuries to Anne-Christine, but he also had been hit with a blunt object on the forehead whilst he was still alive. The police don't have many leads, but are able to find a shoe print and DNA traces on toes, trousers, and on the duct tape. But no match is found. Since the double murder had been extremely brutal, the police first believe that it has been committed by someone who knew the couple and possibly had a disagreement with them. They soon discover that someone logged into Ann-Kristin's bank account on her cell phone on the 11th of June and transferred 20,000 Swedish crowns from her savings account to her debit account. As well as this, three attempts are made to withdraw cash with her credit card at a cash machine about 40 kilometers away from the house. The police demand to see the camera footage from this cash machine, but it turns out that this specific surveillance camera had been out of order for quite some time, so they are not able to get their hands on any images of the person withdrawing the money. 
It's now been three months since the murders. The police focus on trying to find a DNA match, and they take samples from over 300 different people, without any luck. So instead, they decide to look at the duct tape to see if they can figure out more about the killer. There were actually two different types of tape that had been used during the crime. Silver duct tape and black electrical tape. A search was made in the surrounding stores to see if anyone had purchased these items recently. And it turns out that 13 different people had done so. The police immediately decide to take a DNA sample from each of the shoppers in order to hopefully catch the killer. They get a match. The DNA found on Tosh trousers and the duct tape belongs to a 24-year-old father of a young child, Edwin Jyllandsvahn. He had no prior convictions and had never been in trouble with the police before. He was liked by his work colleagues, mainly due to his sense of humour. When the police arrive at his house to arrest him, they also find the shoes that match the shoe prints found at the crime scene. The trial began on the 26th of February, 2018. Edwin is asked to recall his version of events. This is what he said. Okay, I guess it's best to start from the beginning. The man called Matthias has been mentioned by several different people, and I may as well explain my relation to him. I met him in 2013, when I worked at a restaurant. After I got my driver's license, I started to get to know him more and more, and I started to do cash-in-hand jobs for him as a driver. This basically means that I picked him up in Jönköping and drove him around to different places. He wanted to give the illusion that he was so much more important than he actually was. This led to him giving me large sums of money for just a few hours work. I'm not an idiot. Of course I understood that he was a criminal in some way, which became clear quite early in our relationship, so to speak. But I didn't have a clue about what he actually did. I just kept my mouth shut and drove him around when he asked me to. He did ask me several times if I wanted to be a getaway driver during various robberies, but I always declined. I have a family, so that's nothing I wanted to get involved in. The way I saw it, the chauffeur job was harmless, 
and it made me good money. So for a long period of time, I continued to decline his other offers. It wasn't until February of 2017 everything escalated. That's when the first threats against my family and I started. Edwin then claimed that his criminal friend, Matthias, needed him to be his chauffeur and to transport illegal products. Matthias had, according to Edwin, links to dangerous criminal gangs, so Edwin was scared of him. It all culminates one night when they're out driving, when Matthias suddenly begins making threats against his family, unless he agrees to his demands. Edwin therefore suspects that it's probably not one of his normal chauffeur jobs that evening, and he gets really scared. He says during the trial, I took it seriously and did what I was told. After the first threats had been made, and I understood the seriousness of the situation, I got instructions to go buy a gun and a knife. I never questioned it, because I understood from the very start it was going to be something illegal. But not in my wildest imagination could I ever think that what happened that evening would be possible. So I did what I was told and purchased the items and then met up with Matthias and another person that I have chosen to call Elias. That's not his real name, but I will not help to identify who he really is. The only reason as to why I can speak a bit more openly about Matthias is because his name has surfaced from sources other than me. After we met up, I was given direction as to where to drive to. I had no idea where we were going. They were directing me from the back seat. Eventually, we ended up in Mantorp. Matthias knocks on the front door of a house and Ann-Christine opened. She realized very quickly the seriousness of the situation. She saw both the weapons and three men. After that, I and another person entered the house, whilst Matthias stayed outside. I don't really know what he was doing outside, but I'm guessing he was keeping watch. I and the other person went inside and Ann-Christine shouts on Thor, who comes into the room. There is no screams or shouting. The atmosphere is as calm as it possibly could be in that situation. They know just how serious the situation is. It was the other person that was with me who did the talking. He was speaking calmly, 
and methodically, as people do in a situation like that, to avoid panic. They are led into the kitchen, where they are seated on a chair, and then tape them up with the black tape. Firstly, I taped Tosh hands, then Anchristin's, then Tosh feet, and thereafter Anchristin's. Then the other person started talking to them. He asked them where they kept their mobile phones and wallets. I collected them and put them by the stove. It is at this point the other person noticed that I'm not wearing any gloves. So he pulls out a pair from his back pocket and handed them to me and I put them on. He got the codes to their internet banks and I made the transaction of 20,000 Swedish crowns. After that, I taped their hands and torso with the silver tape and I received instructions to also tape their mouths and eyes, but not their noses, which I did. That's when I noticed one of the tips of the gloves was missing, so I hand over the tape to the other person. I got instructions to drive to the nearest bank machine to get the money, which I did. According to Edwin, he gets in the car and types in bank machine in his GPS and is directed to the closest one, around 40 kilometers away. He leaves Matthias and Elias at the house with Toad and Anne-Christine and drives off. During the drive, he texts his girlfriend, who believes that he's doing one of his chauffeur jobs like he usually did. When he gets to the bank machine, he withdraws 15,000 crowns from Toad and Anne-Christine's account. He says during the trial, At the time, I was very confused. I'm not really sure what happened. I didn't know what to do. I had received instructions that this would be the final stage, and after that, I just drove around. I eventually ended up in Linköping, just by chance. I'm not really sure where my mind was at this point, but I just tried to get by and digest what had happened. So I parked the car and started walk around the streets of Linköping. I saw a restaurant and realized that I was hungry, so I went inside and ate. After that, I realized I'm not going to be able to cope with this, so I drove home. I had kept things secret from my girlfriend and told her I was doing things that I hadn't and said that I've been places I haven't. And this was because she was unaware of the threats against us. So after I got home, I didn't have a clue how to handle what had just happened. But at the time, I knew I'd just been involved in the robbery of an elderly couple in Mantorp. 
according to Edwin. He met up with Elias and Matthias the next day. He handed over the mobile phone he had been using to contact them, and they told him to keep the money that he had received from the bank machine. Before they part ways, they remind him that they know where to find his family, just in case he was thinking about going to the police with any information. Edwin continued. I had a big knot in my stomach because of what I had done. A real guilty conscience. And this was before I even knew what had actually happened. Later on the Monday, I took my family out. I didn't really reflect over what had happened because I had a job and a family to take care of, so I suppressed it. I tried to live a normal life. But then on the Tuesday, I read in the newspaper about what had happened. I can't really describe what I was feeling, what my choices had led to. That's when I realized the seriousness of the situation in regards to the threats that had been made and what would happen if I would pass on any information to the police. So by that point, I had been threatened, been pushed around and forced to do these things against my will because I had to. So I moved on with my life, tried to suppress everything. But I have been following the story to see what happened. And then the police contact me because of the purchase I made and I met them outside my work. They questioned me and took a DNA swab. I had read in the newspaper that they had found DNA at the crime scene, but I didn't think that it could have been mine, which it later turned out to be. But like others in this type of situation, I had an impulse and tried to get away. So I lied and cheated in an attempt to get away with it. But on the Friday, they arrested me. And during the first interview, attempted to lie and bluff my way out of the situation, claiming that I was innocent. But then I decided to say nothing, to protect myself and my family. But still to this day, I sit here and say that I didn't kill them. But I have to put my hand on my heart and say that my choices had consequences. But that was consequences that were out of my control and that I could do nothing about. I only tried to handle the situation in the only way I could and the result of this was the murder of two people. I have enormous guilt over this and I will always have it. But it wasn't me who killed them. However, the prosecutors had a completely different opinion of what had happened that day in Mantorp. And they painted 
a completely different picture to that of the loving father and good work colleague image. Edwin's girlfriend said that she first heard him talk about Matthias about two to three years previous to the murders. At first, he started selling him different items, such as knives, and then he started to do the chauffeur jobs. But she had never met him. One of Edwin's friends tells a similar story in court. He too had never met Matthias, but didn't like what he was hearing about him and got the impression that he wasn't a very nice person. When Edwin's partner is asked if she has any proof that Matthias actually exists, she says she has to believe her boyfriend and that she finds it hard to believe that he would just drive around for hours on end when he said he was doing jobs for him. In addition to that, he always came back with the money he was promised for the work. But it turns out that there had been money which had gone missing from Edwin's previous jobs, and they suspected that this is where he got the money from. During 2014, Edwin is feeling really bad and is struggling with mental health issues. He has also just broken up with his girlfriend. It's him who ended the relationship because he was afraid that he would physically hurt her. He explained to her that he could get sudden impulses to hurt and kill people, as well that he was suffering from hallucinations. Shortly after the breakup of his relationship, Edwin went missing. His family contacted missing people, and the administrator for the support group wrote a message to Edwin on Facebook explaining to him that his family was looking for him and that he should get in contact with them or her as soon as possible. Not long after this, Edwin calls her on the number she left in the message. He told her that he was in a hotel room in Gothenburg and he had tried to hang himself but hadn't succeeded in doing so. He was feeling terrible because of the horrible thoughts he had about hurting people. He sounded very angry and said he had a mental death list in his head where he ranked people that he wanted to kill. His boss was at the top of that list. He had for a long time been thinking about stabbing him. He talked a lot about both cutting and stabbing him, 
mentioning the amount of blood a stabbing would cause and that he wanted to gouge his eyes out with a spoon and cut his fingers off. He spoke very coldly about this and the support worker felt very uncomfortable believing that he was capable of going through with it. So she phones the police who pick Edwin up from the hotel and drive him to the mental care unit where he is later admitted to a psychiatric ward. When Edwin returned home to his girlfriend after being at Thor and Anne Christine's house, she asked him if it all went good, believing that he had just been picking up a suitcase for Matthias, which he had told her about earlier that day. He continues to lie to her and says that he had met Matthias and admitted that he had sneaked a look inside the suitcase and saw that it was filled with a large sum of money. When he is brought in for questioning at the police station, Edwin tells his girlfriend that the reason for this was because his mobile phone had pinged near the area of the crime scene, so they just needed to ask him some questions. She says that she didn't think he seemed to be nervous about this at all. Edwin was then charged with the murder of both Thor and Anne-Christine, and he is then interviewed over 12 separate occasions. During the first two interviews, he claimed that he hadn't even been at the scene of the crime. But during the third and fourth interviews, he claimed he had stopped and asked an elderly woman for directions. The more that he was interviewed, the less he talked. And by the end, his standard reply was, no comment. It wasn't until he was presented with the evidence from the investigation that he told one final version of events that he claimed to be the true story. The investigation team made use of several resources in order to try and track down both Matthias and Elias, but were unable to trace them. They couldn't find any phone records or evidence that Edwin had received death threats. In fact, they couldn't even find any evidence of both men actually existing. Nobody could verify them being real, since nobody they spoke to had ever met them. Nobody but Edwin, that is. But Edwin didn't want to help the investigators in the search for Matthias, or even reveal the true identity of Elias. He, of course, claimed that he was too afraid of what they might do to him and his family. 
apart from blood, there was also another fluid found at the crime scene, which turned out to be blackcurrant juice. In one of the earlier interviews, Edwin had mentioned that the older lady had given him some blackcurrant juice when he stopped and asked for directions. When asked about this during the trial, he then claimed that it wasn't true. He wasn't offered blackcurrant juice. He had just said so during questioning because it happened to be his personal favorite. A strange lie to make during an interview in a murder investigation. There were no other traces of any other person at the scene of the crime, except for Edwin. Both his DNA and shoe print were found, but no traces of two other men being on the premises is ever found. It is also discovered that at the time of the murders, Edwin and his family were struggling financially and he had only around 86 crowns in his account to feed his family with the next payday a good bit away. This obviously adds to the theory that the robbery was also partly financially motivated. When questioned during the trial about his previous mental health issues and the fact that he had admitted to wanting to kill people, giving a motive to the murders, he said. The only comment I have to make about that is that the previous time I thought I had hurt someone, I tried to kill myself. And in all honesty, if I had done what people think I have done, I wouldn't have went to a restaurant to eat a steak and then returned home pretending nothing had happened. I'm a man with quite strong moral principles. I don't want to hurt people, and I never wanted to do that. Edwin claimed that the plan was to tape Toad and Anne Christine and then leave them, whilst he went to withdraw the money. They would either just leave them as they were or call someone who could cut them free. He says, that after he left to go to the bank machine, he had no idea that Matthias and Elias had killed the elderly couple by cutting their throats. The prosecutor then asked Edwin what the purpose of these murders was since Edwin was allowed to keep all the money. There wasn't anything in it for Matthias or Elias the alleged murderers. Edwin said that he doesn't have a clue. On the 9th of May, Edwin is convicted of the murders of Thor and Anne-Christine. The verdict states that the murders had been planned and that two elderly people targeted for some reason, despite having no connection to him. The course of action taken 
was reckless in the extreme, and the murders were akin to an execution. Edwin is judged to have been sane at the time of the murders and is sentenced to life in prison. During the trial, Thor and Ann-Christine's daughter is asked if she could think of any reason as to why anyone would want to be violent towards her parents. With tears running down her face, sobbing and struggling to speak, she says, No, mom and dad were the world's kindest people. They would never do anything to someone else that would result in someone doing this to them. I don't understand how someone could ever do this to them. The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. and I'm the host of the Unseen Podcast. We look at missing person cases, unresolved crimes and lesser known stories from around the UK. We delve into cases that do not gain public attention, such as unidentified people and historic cold cases. If you're interested in true crime from the UK, then you might be interested in having a listen to the Unseen. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts.